Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. That, of course, is your time. If you're new to the Suncast podcast because you're following today's guest, well, you are in for a real treat. I want to thank you for the opportunity to earn your attention. I hope you'll come back. Today's entrepreneur truly needs no introduction, so I won't belabor the process. If you haven't heard of Jigger Shaw, I invite you to listen way back to episode 60 of Suncast. Yeah, that's 2017. Jigger, it's been five years since you were on Suncast. And with the years, you've only grown in influence, my friend, and wisdom as well. Jigger is one of the most influential voices in the energy transition. He's also been a friend and mentor for much of my career in solar, having coincidentally met back in San Francisco at Hotel Nico, if you can believe that, in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to hear Jigger's update after a year in public service as director of the loan programs office at the Department of Energy, a position he was appointed to as President Biden's administration took office and more specifically, Secretary Granholm tapped him to take the steady helm of the once strong and uh, depowered loan programs office during the last administration. He is once again boosting the government's focus on clean energy, decarbonization, and the energy transition. Hey, if you really like what you hear today, well, I hope that you'll subscribe to the show because there's more in store where we have twice weekly content just like this. You can always check out our more than 450 episodes now of founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, Let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, Jigger, I want to invite you, if you will, as you can see, I've let my hair down. So I know that uh, you, you get, for, for anyone who's not watching the video on YouTube, uh, I usually have my hair up in a bun because it's grown during the pandemic. Jigger, I would invite you to do the same metaphysically, metaphorically. You've got this buttoned up job now at the government. And I bet most of your interviews, uh, as is this one, they're really timed out. You're formal and on point. And you know the Suncast audience wants to hear behind the story. They want to hear the real Jigger Shaw. They want to hear the things that got you where you are today. So it's a little more intimate and vulnerable, yet still informative. So I just want to say welcome to Suncast again, man. It's been too long. Well, I'm really happy to be here. And as you know, you know, I mean, I'm really, you're very kind to say that I've grown an influence, but honestly, our industry has grown an in influence. Our industry has grown in importance as climate change continues to ravage, you know, not just uh, our local weather, but global weather. Right. And so and, and global uh, events. And so it's it's important that we all do what we can as fast as we can. Well, we're definitely going to talk a lot about how you arrived uh, where, you know, to the station that you have now. Uh, heading the loan programs office. I want to make sure for those who perhaps know nothing about it at all, could you just give us the the script notes on what the loan program office is, why it exists, and maybe even some of the ar- architecture of how it functions within DOE? Yeah, look, I think that at the core of of what Senator Domenici uh, envisioned when he invented the program in 2005 was that 
you know, the Department of Energy has done an extraordinary job of creating all these technologies and funding all these technologies that innovators have created. And what you find is that when the technology is ready for prime time and they go to a local bank for money, the local bank often doesn't say no because they think it's too risky, although maybe that's what it is. They often say no because they say it's too different. It's going to take 500 hours worth of time for me to convince my investment committee that this is worth spending time on. And as a result, we have all these technologies gathering dust on the shelf that should be helping to reduce carbon emissions, reduce the cost of energy for you know Americans and people around the world. And instead, they're just sitting in the lab. And so that's the promise of the loan programs office. And we had a good start in 2009. Uh, 2010, 2011, when we put out about $35 billion with loans. And uh, mostly I would say it's solar, wind, geothermal, transmission, EV manufacturing with Tesla and Fisker, and then battery manufacturing with Nissan. And then, you know, today the sectors have just gotten broader and bigger, right? From hydrogen to carbon sequestration, yeah. storage, others. We've got about $40 billion of debt capacity left. It's split between Title 17, which is largely viewed as project finance, but also can do manufacturing. We've got ATVM, which is the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, which is where EV manufacturing, battery manufacturing, critical minerals resides. And then you've got the Tribal Energy Loan Guarantee Program, where we're trying to make sure that tribes take advantage of this wealth creation opportunity in fighting climate. You know, Jigger, the last year has uh, been a transition in many different ways uh, for you, obviously, career-wise. You're running a loan program office. I think a lot of folks, even like me, don't know much about the resources available at Loan Program Office or even the track record of the work that you've done. You've just given a kind of a high-level overview. I understand you've recently published the annual report, which ostensibly points to the work that has been accomplished under your tenure as the new director of Loan Program Office. What could you share by way of an overview of the last year, your first year in office? Yeah, look, I think that when you think about where we were when we came in, right, the loan programs office had largely been dormant, according to, you know, the Secretary of Energy's testimony during her confirmation hearing for 10 years. And, uh, you know, I don't know that entrepreneurs look to us as their first port of call when they really needed to, to bring uh, their technologies to uh, the first of a kind deployment, et cetera. Today, we've got you know, 300 active people who are working in our ecosystem. We've got 77 applications that are active within the office, meaning that someone's working on them. You know, they're asking for roughly $70 billion worth of loan proceeds. You know, we're averaging somewhere between one and one and a half applications a week uh, coming into the office, right? So when you think about the momentum that has been generated by the secretary and the president, it's been really amazing. Uh, and a lot of that's trust, right? I mean, we haven't proven ourselves yet. We've done one conditional commitment. We've got a few more that are, you know, coming down the pike. But I think that when you think about, you know, all the time and effort that people have to put into these applications, they're trusting that they're going to be treated fairly and that we're going to, you know, adjudicate this loan uh, in a timely fashion. And we haven't proven ourselves yet, but we are, on our way, uh, we've got 170 extraordinary people at the Loan Programs Office that's doing that work. And as you suggested, we have a proven track record. I mean, so our current portfolio of roughly $30 billion of loans is stable and is now a rated investment grade. And so it's an investment grade portfolio, meaning that there's very few losses expected going forward. And we generate roughly $500 million a year in interest payments to the Treasury. 
right? So we're actually making money for the government. So I think when you think about our existing portfolio, it's doing really well. And we've got 40 or so amazing professionals who manage that portfolio. And then we've got um, a really full pipeline of people and we're gaining people's trust every day to get people more comfortable to spend the time. It's probably 500 hours worth of work just to put in the part one application, right? Which is no uh, small feat, but then our average loan size is, you know, $830 million. Our median loan size yeah. is $530 million. And so you're talking about, you know, really being the place where large infrastructure goes to get deployed. Well, Jager, most of the folks know uh, about your track record and history with uh, the companies you've created in the past on Edison and, and generate sort of expanded beyond solar, but we, we come from solar roots. And to be honest, I feel that most of the folks in the solar industry kind of look at the LPOE and say, is there still a place for solar at LPOE? I'd love to hear your thoughts on if there is, uh, and, and if so, how, through what vehicles? Well, look, I think that the broader point here is that American innovation really is around miniaturizing things, right? It used to be that bigger was better, right? And today, small is beautiful, right? Whether it's your iPhone, who, which is more powerful than all the computers that it took to put a man on the moon, or whether it's wastewater treatment plants today, where a 15 or $20 million unit can actually be more cost-effective and efficient than a $500 million unit, right? And so the loan programs office needs to figure out how we actually fund a collection of deployments as opposed to just one deployment. And so we're finding that whether it's battery storage or electric vehicle fleets or solar, that there is this requirement to warehouse and to figure out a way to uh, aggregate up all of these uh, deployments under one integrated business plan so that we can actually make sure that that level of innovation continues to thrive as well. And so we spent a lot of time in 2015 putting a lot of the legal requirements in place to do that. The application that was for ended up not closing. And so that effort sort of stalled. But I think when I came in, you know, I realized that not only do we need to serve that community, but also when you think about the president's justice goals, the aggregation of devices is going to be where we provide the most direct support on the justice side. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time fixing the underlying sort of silence, I would say, in our mandate, right? When we put a lot of our rules together in 2009, uh, we just didn't speak to this issue because we didn't think that any of these applications were going to come in. And so we updated a lot of our guidance documents, our legal documents, et cetera, to make sure that that these types of projects were allowed to to apply. And now we've got uh, many applications applying. I think where the most interest is, is in virtual power plants. And, you know, when you think about where a lot of the solar industry has gone, it's not just putting solar on rooftops. It's also adding battery systems to each one of those projects. And those battery systems have value to the grid. So, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, they can bid into FERC order 2222 markets where, you know, FERC has said that these batteries should be able to compete directly with natural gas peaker plants for, you know, grid operations. And then you've got individual utilities who are saying at the circuit level that, you know, upgrading the grid to plug in 20 electric vehicles at the same time doesn't make any sense. It's far more cost-effective to allow the loads to be modulated to be able to make sure that we don't hit a peak at any one time, but instead that we have the, the loads actually schedule themselves throughout the day 
so that we can actually use the existing infrastructure to handle it. And these batteries that the solar industry is putting in are core to doing that. But separately, what you're finding is, is that whether it's refrigerators or water heaters, these are thermal storage, that they actually are replaced usually when they break. And people oftentimes, particularly low-moderate income uh, consumers, are oftentimes forced to replace them in an emergency situation, and they pay 30% interest for that. And that just seems unconscionable. And so when you think about all the solar fintech platforms and all of the technology that they've developed, they have an ability to go down to $1,000 loans as well and help folks get more reasonably priced loans. And those resources can also participate in demand response and load control because by definition, they're thermal storage. So whether your water heater turns on exactly after you take a shower or whether it turns on 12 hours later is something that's easy to control. And in fact, in France, they've been controlling all electric water heaters throughout France for the better part of 35 years. So it sounds like the ability to uh, have the LPO back fintech as well as solar startups that are providing solutions at the residential level is something that not only is needed, but the loan program offices is opening as an avenue and saying, hey, solar companies really should be leading on this. So I'll ask the question that maybe folks are perhaps a little unclear about. Could you explain a bit as for me, the person that I first looked to as my finance guru, can you explain a bit of the financing structure for VPPs? I feel like it's a little less obvious. It's more stratified. How could they understand how this might benefit their company and thereby the, the consumers they serve? Yeah, I think it's important to learn how solar financing works. And then this is all an extension of solar financing. So when you think about residential solar financing, it's a unsecured loan, right? You might have a UCC filing on the um, the solar panels, which means that, you know, technically, if there's a default, you can come back and take the solar panels off their roof. But very few people do that. And so it's really more around an unsecured loan for 20 years. But the reason that people pay it back, as opposed to, let's say, credit card debt or healthcare debt, is because they know that they're saving money with their solar system and that if they don't pay the payment, then you can remotely shut off the solar system and then they're just stuck paying a higher price with the electric utility. So there is a, there is a feedback loop there that allows people to pay on time. And what you find is, is that compared to credit card debt, people are actually paying back these loans with half the default rate of credit card debt and healthcare receivables, right? And so, whereas you might have 35% losses in healthcare receivables for people who are below 680 FICO score, you're seeing something on the order of more like 15 to 18% losses in the solar space. So when you start to put all that information together, you aggregate all these loans, you provide a loan to you know the end customer, and then you go to Wall Street and you say to Wall Street, hey, are there people who want to buy bonds against these loans. And it turns out there's a ton of people who want to do that, as well as commercial banks who just want to hold it, right? I mean, you saw that Fifth Third Bank bought Dividend Solar the other day, and Fifth Third Bank has billions of dollars of excess checking and savings accounts deposits that they don't have loans for. So they're not making money on that money. They're just holding it for you, right? And so they bought Dividend because they want to put a lot of that money to work in these loans, and so what you find is, is that the, the interest rate that they're getting on securitization now is roughly 2%. So Wall Street is saying that for a fully diversified portfolio of these loans, you're getting a 2% cost of capital. Now people got to get paid, right? So like Dividend Solar has to get paid or Solar Mosaic or Goodleap or all these other players, right? Sunrun, Sonova. And so 
So they got to charge a little higher interest rate. So they're charging, let's say, 399 for the interest rate for very high FICO score customers. Then when you go to people below 680, they're charging, let's call it 8% or 9% for those loans, right? That's still a lot cheaper than 30% cost of capital, which is where folks were, right? And so, so now the question becomes, when you go to Wall Street, Wall Street says, ah, it make our life a lot easier if you didn't serve anybody below 680. And they're not being mean. They're just saying our, the data is a lot clearer above 680 than below 680. So we'd rather you not do below 680 because then we're taking more risk, right? And so that's where the loan programs office can, can come in. Our colleagues at the you know, Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy Group at DOE has done a bunch of work with NYSERDA, the Connecticut Green Bank, and others, and have found that people really do pay back these loans. So now we can use that data as well as other data that, that exists, and we can provide a guarantee to those Wall Street banks and say to them, hey, please serve the people below 680. The data actually is a lot more clear than you're saying it is, and we'll take the risk that the data is more clear, right? Now, over time, we expect that Wall Street will say, well, actually, it's a pain to work with you at the loan programs office, and you're right, the data is clear, so thank you for helping us to see the light. And now we're going to move on without using your resources, which is the entire point of the loan programs office, right? We're supposed to be a catalyst to force people to spend a little more time on this data as opposed to, you know, getting caught in conventional wisdom. That is hands down the best explanation I've heard on both points. And I really appreciate that. That's I think this is one of your special skills is that you can take something that is complex and takes years to understand and distill it into a three minute explanation. So thank you for that. It sounds to me a bit like, and I want to make sure I'm a hundred percent clear on. So I did a lot of business uh, in, in Latin America and XM and OPIC would step in and provide effectively credit enhancement products to help ensure that the investors that were doing foreign direct investment were not totally exposed to the market. It sounds a little bit like that's what the loan program office is doing for Wall Street for these uh, lower or yeah, so under 680 FICO scores. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, basically what you're looking at doing is saying when you have a portfolio of loans, and by the way, this is not just residential, it's also commercial, right? Mm. Commercial CNI solar in the United States, um, everyone prides themselves in not having any losses, <laughs> right? But I need you to have some more losses. There are a lot of- It's not taking enough risks. Yeah, well, there's a lot of rooftops that we know- that are perfect for one megawatt and larger solar installations that we're not doing. In fact, we could deploy $400 billion of solar on those rooftops just using Google Sunroof and some of the other satellite imaging information that you can get. And yeah, some of those buildings may have a tenant that only has three years left on it, right? But they're likely to get filled once that tenant, you know, like leaves. And separately, you know, What's the vacancy rate? So maybe you put solar on all of those rooftops, right? The power still feeds back into the grid. Maybe you only get paid two cents a kilowatt hour for it. I get it. But when someone's in the building, they're paying 12 cents a kilowatt hour for it. And you make a lot of money at 12 cents because it only costs about six cents a kilowatt hour to put it on that roof, right? Or seven cents maybe, right? And so then if you have a vacancy rate of 20%, where the buildings that at any given time, the entire portfolio, 20% of the systems are not paying that full 12 cents a kilowatt hour. Okay, well, the numbers still work, right? And we get by all these interconnection guidelines and all these rules and everything else that's holding up solar deployment right now. So if we want to move faster, 
I think residential and commercial and industrial solar through the portfolio approach has to be a main strategy for how we get to the president's 2035 goals. And especially to the point of um, of this particular topic, the ability to add on with FERC 2222 virtual power plants gives a lot of flexibility for fleet owners, exactly as you described. So thanks again for giving insight into that. Hey, you know, it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale. But if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever, then you realize it's easier said than done until now. Look, I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry, but Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be deployed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yada Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yada. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yada Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Hey, Warriors, if you're subscribed to my email newsletter, then you probably saw an email come through about my good friend Sheldon Kimber, who I consider to be one of the preeminent thought leaders around how our industry can scale faster and hit gigaton level decarbonization. And while there's so much I could say about Sheldon, the thing I want you to know is that he's recently written another blog post all about the nexus of deep deep carbonization. You see, Sheldon is the CEO of Intersect Power, which is a clean energy company that is looking at innovative and scalable low-carbon solutions to customers' needs across North America and beyond. And Sheldon and his team really believe that the zero-carbon industries of tomorrow will be enabled by clean electricity technologies of today. And that deep decarbonization will be enabled by the historic affordability and availability of renewable energy, which is what Intersect develops. You can learn more about Sheldon and Intersect Power. Read his latest blogs over at intersectpower.com. Com. I would really encourage you to go take that opportunity right now. Wait, not right now. You're in the middle of a podcast. So cue it up or click on the links that we've got in the show notes. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. HexSolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. 
They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. I hear a common critique as well. You know, at the, at the top, you said that you're supporting companies like Tesla. You know, what, what about folks that might say, look, 835 million is a lot of change. I don't, I don't need that much money. I'm just not big enough for LPO. I have two questions for you there. So the first is, what do you say to those folks that say, I'm just not big enough? Is there sort of a minimum threshold? And then the second is, okay, I've qualified you. You've convinced me. What makes a strong application? I'd love to hear those two answers together. So we've done deals that are in that $75 million range. And so we can do $75 million deals. For folks are, that are below that threshold, what I've said to people is, look, we have to save carbon at gigaton scale. So I appreciate all of the uh, enthusiasm for your business model. And if you're still early days, that's fine. There's other programs within the Department of Energy, whether it's the Office of Clean Energy Demonstration or, or individual grant programs that they applied offices. But, you know, if you want to make a difference at gigaton scale, you got to be at a 75 to $100 million range, right? You, you just have to be, right? And so if you're not, find a friend and combine their portfolio with your portfolio, right? Oh, yeah. But the notion- You can do joint applications. Well, it's one- it's, But you should create another company. It's one yeah. finance entity, right? Got it. But, mm-hmm. but the thing is, is that like, I just think that we have to have ambition today. I think when you heard the president's State of the Union address, I mean, he made it pretty clear that we were on track to doing big things again as a country, right? This incremental stuff is great. Don't get me wrong. And it has made people's lives better, but it is not actually the main- message of the United States of America, right? We are the country who transformed all of our, you know, auto manufacturing facilities to make tanks and airplanes, right? We're the ones who figured out how to save the world from, you know, in World War II. We're doing the same from Russia right now in Ukraine. And when you think about what that requires, it's not just, you know, the fighting on the battlefield, which I absolutely support our troops who are doing fantastic work protecting NATO countries. But it's also figuring out how we get people off of Russian oil and gas, right? And that means figuring out how we ramp up heat pump manufacturing and deployment, how we ramp up water heaters that are heat pumps, how we ramp up, you know, things like smart thermostats, things like bidirectional charging, right? All of the things that the president has talked about around figuring out how we actually reduce our oil consumption as opposed to just fighting the wars on the battlefield. Jigger, of the applications that you see coming in, is there anything that you consider to be a hallmark of a great application? Well, look, I think that we are a commercial bank at the core, right? And so we can't take disparate slips of paper and put it together as an application for you. And so you have to be able to put together a full data room, a full model, and and really talk through not just your hopes and dreams, which we support 100%, but also all of the predictable failure mechanisms that you can predict, right? What are the 10 ways that this could go wrong, right? We want to know that. And you have to self-report that, right? If we look through your application and go, 
huh, they didn't talk about these other three failure mechanisms, then what we think is clearly they haven't thought through their business very carefully, right? So I think some folks think, well, I'm just being optimistic. That's what equity investors want. They want me to be optimistic. They want me to focus on the positive, focus on the 5X, 10X return. I was like, that's great. That's an equity presentation. This is a debt presentation. So a debt presentation means tell me the other 12 ways that we might lose all of our money. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to give you a loan, which is what I think makes people afraid and which is why people don't give us all that information. But we have to go in eyes wide open to all the risks and make sure that the risks balance each other so that we're being careful and that we're actually being thoughtful because the thing is, is that our money is never the last money, right? Like our underwriting criteria is very strict, but it's not the most strict. And so what you find is that actually there are a lot of other people who are going to be more strict. And so if you make it through the loan programs office, then you are well prepared to actually just work with a traditional commercial bank. Well, Jigger, I want to take a slight turn here and focus a little bit more on the decisions you've made around your career, in particular getting to the loan programs office and uh, the implications that that might have for many who find themselves uh, looking for uh, an opportunity to play a, a critical role in the energy transition. A lot of us look at your career as not only demonstrative of how to build a company in the clean energy sector, but how to make a huge impact and arguably, you've made your money and your impact. And I see by nature of how long it takes you to respond to my text today that you're working harder than you've ever worked before. And I'd like to hear why uh, at this stage in your, in your career, you decided to say yes to Secretary Granholm's invitation to take this role at all and go into public service at this stage in your career. Yeah, no, thanks, Nico, for that really important question. I, I'd say that, you know, I was 16 when I read a book that changed the course of my life that made me want to think about working in energy. And, you know, at the time it was a book on energy sources and solar and nuclear were the ones who, that stood out to me, right? Both technologies were really not being pursued at the time. Uh, this was 1990. You know, when I decided to work in solar, uh, and I decided to do that, you know, before I went to college, you know, people were like, wow, that's a waste of talent, right? You should do something more important. And, you know, I wanted to do something that I thought was an important challenge that we needed solving in the world, right? I thought solar panels were really cool. It was the first time we had thought about, you know, creating electricity without burning something, without creating steam and, 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 you know, turning a turbine to make, uh, electricity, but instead you actually were using a solid state device to do that, right? And we had we had figured out how to power satellites, right? I mean, power remote mountain, you know, sort of communications equipment, right? With solar, right? It was rugged. It really stood the test of time, right? It was invented in 1954, but had not yet still been ubiquitous by 1990. And so it was curious to me around like, well, what does it take? for these important American innovations, right? That was invented at Bell Labs in 1954 to really get out of the marketplace and help people around the world. And, you know, that's what started my journey. And, you know, at the time, I think, you know, when I started Sun Edison in 2003, after working at BP Solar, you know, my wife would, was in the presidential management, you know, fellows program. And I think her salary was probably like $29,000 a year. And we had just bought a house on, you know, U Street, and, uh, you know, and I was making, I think, 60 grand a year at BP Solar. And so 
when you think about like, I didn't pursue this for the money, right? I mean, I pursued this to try to make a difference and you know, the money came, right? We, we were part of a huge revolution, right? From the California, you know, solar program to the German feed and tariff programs to the, you know, Chinese uh, manufacturing revolution to others, you know, there, there are a lot of things that occurred uh, globally, some of which we had some influence on and some of which uh, just happened, right? Um, the 30% tax credit passing in 2005 in that same bill that created LPO. And so, so when I got asked to serve, you know, part of my calculus was, look, can I make a lot of money in the private sector? Yeah, of course I can. And make a big difference too. Um, I have a lot of uh, respect for my colleagues in the private sector. That being said, the government is not and was not a partner at the time with Generate Capital. It wasn't, right? When we made investments, we did not check with government experts to get their best perspective before we made investments. And so when I got the call, I was thinking, you know, why don't we? There's 10,000 engineers, scientists, and experts on the DOE platform. They're here to help Americans like get their innovations to market, right? Or their best ideas through the lab, right? And we we never bothered to even pay attention, right? And so when I got the call, I was like, I actually have a unique ability to help fix that, right? And I think we're doing yeah. it. We've got hundreds of people who are interacting with the loan programs office. We have thousands of people now interacting with DOE on the bipartisan infrastructure legislation and the implementation of $62 billion of capital. And I've convinced at least 50 to 100 people from the private sector to leave their jobs and join me at the Department of Energy, which is extraordinarily gratifying, right? It's one thing to say, you know, they're going to follow you on Twitter or read your LinkedIn or text you. It's another thing for them to leave their jobs and to serve with you. And that's been the highest honor. Um, so it's been, it's really been great. Well, I've, uh, I've watched a lot of our colleagues and friends follow you in that journey. And it's really inspiring. Uh, you have been uh, on the, uh, I'll say on, on record as stating, we need a thousand bright people in the industry. Uh, I think a couple of things come up for many of us when we hear that. The first is I'll make way more money in the private sector than go get a government job. And the second is I don't want to move to DC. What would you say to those two uh, objections? Well, one is, I mean, the government pays, you know, pretty decently, right? I mean, you know, sure, people all think they're going to make, you know, billions of dollars in the clean tech space. We're not going to give you billions of dollars, but we pay pretty <laughs> decently. I think our benefits are fantastic. But the bigger thing is that when you think about the kind of money Department of Energy is putting out the door, seven and a half billion dollars in rebates for EV charging, right? Or, you know, uh, $8 billion for uh, industrial hydrogen hubs, right? we're not going to get those investments right unless we have people who have toiled in the trenches giving us advice. And sure, you could give us advice from the outside. And I respect every person who is attending our, you know, request for information briefings and like submitting written comments. And that's super important and necessary. But for some people, they want to do more. They want to, they want to be able to help the government take that investment over the next 10 years. Remember the president during the state of the union address said that, you know, we're done with infrastructure weeks. This is now the infrastructure decade. Wow. Yep. Right. So, well, that means that we need your expertise. It's one thing to do these things off of a spreadsheet in the lab, whatever it is. And those people are extraordinary, but it's another thing 
to have somebody work here who's like, well, I tried to pull that permit. Here are the problems. I tried to go through that FERC process. Here is the issue. I tried to get this done. And here are the issues that I faced in doing the deploy, deploy, deploy part of things. Right. And getting that scar tissue to join the government is going to move trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars. And that is what it takes to save the planet from climate change. Right. And so, look, government service is not for everybody, but for those people who think that they can rise to that challenge, it is the perfect place to take your passion to do good in the world and and fully realize it. In terms of your last um, point there around D.C., look, there's a lot of benefits to D.C. It is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Um, (laughs) That being said, you know, not everyone has to move here. I think COVID has taught us that people can remote can work remotely. And we allow people to work remotely. So, you know, many of the professionals here at the loan programs office don't live here in DC, but live in California or Colorado or Mm -hmm. Boston or lots of other places. And so, so that shouldn't stop you from putting in your application to energy.gov slash careers. That was perfect. Uh, there's so much more on uh, on my radar, things I'd hope to get back to with you in future conversations around domestic manufacturing, critical minerals, batteries, and other forms of storage. Is there a, a resource or a place for folks who want to already hear kind of the things that you've already posted about those topics where they should go and check that out? Yeah, we have a blog here at the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office, and we keep it chock full of all of that information with links to you know, interviews that I've given, podcasts that I've done, et cetera. I mean, there's just so much to cover. We have over 20 sectors that we're actively engaged with, 14 of which have already submitted substantial numbers of applications into Loan Programs Office. And, you know, for many of my colleagues in the solar industry, your expertise is what they need in the other 19 sectors. And so think about, even if you decide not to join government, which you should, but think about moving to one of those other sectors where they really need your expertise. Yeah. And speaking of those other sectors, on a final note, as you mentioned, uh, the administration is committing more than $8 billion to industrial hydrogen. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but I, uh, am, I've got this new series that we're launching out as a podcast on green hydrogen. Uh, it's just a simple ask. I'd love to have you back at some point in the not too distant future on the Green Hydrogen podcast to talk specifically about the announcement with Monolith and the things that you see around hydrogen as part of the infrastructure needed to deploy. I look forward to it. Thanks, Nico. Jigger, so good to see you again. Thanks, my friend. We'll see you next time around. All right. Be well. Well, there you have it, Solar Warriors. Another opportunity to hear from one of the greats in the industry. And Jigger, I'm truly grateful for you, my friend. Thank you for taking the time, not just to share here with our solar warriors your thoughts on how they can still be relevant and participate at the loan program office but to give from your deep well of experience as you just enunciated into that public service and for the call to arms as it were that you've given to all the solar warriors out there we have a place in civil service civic service whether it's locally or at a national level i too would implore you Think about how you can contribute uh, at at your own local solar association within the Department of Energy, if you so choose, and in so many other ways that we really can and should be continuing to be the torchbearers and the and and helping further the industry beyond just how we're building our own individual companies. I hope that you have learned 
a ton here today. I sure have about how the loan program office works and more specifically, if it might be a good fit for you or your company looking for domestic manufacturing, looking to backstop a portfolio of distributed energy resources with financing uh, and, and credit enhancement from loan program office. All of these and more are at your disposal. And in particular, regarding resources, the things that you'll want to go check out on our blog post are the annual report that Jigger mentioned at the top of the show that goes deep into the results and how the loan program office has increased their credit rating and uh, reduced the loss rate. And every single month, there is a monthly report on applications deployed and the amount of money left in the office. I would encourage you to go check that out. And the third, of course, as Jigger so aptly pointed out, is how you can pursue that career at the Department of Energy Loan Program office or any other location within the Department of Energy. We will link to all of this, of course, as we always do in the show notes. If you're eager to keep learning, I would encourage you, my fellow Philomath, to go look at those resources and some highlights from this discussion and every other discussion for that matter. As we always post them over at mysuncast.com, you can click on the episodes tab and that will take you to the latest blog. And of course, you can search by scrolling all the way to the bottom of the website and clicking on the search button. Since you're already going to be online, I would really, really love it. And I know Jigger would as well. If you would jump over to LinkedIn, check out the post that we've made about this episode and leave us your comments or concerns. Uh, Let Jigger know that either you like it or don't like it or what other questions you would have asked if you had the chance to have the mic with Jigger. Hope that you'll continue to tune in as every Tuesday and Thursday we bring you tactical and practical advice on how to build your clean energy career. And I'd like to take the final moment here to thank once again our sponsors for helping make this content free to you as always. Thanks to SunGrow for being our presenting sponsor. You can learn more about our sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn ways to partner and reach the thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions who tune in twice a week, just like you have today. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>